Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of the heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Does anyone recognize that building? Yeah? Or where it might be? No. A long way from Royal Perth. It's... uh, the Anglican Cathedral in Christchurch, New Zealand, before the earthquake in 2011. This is the Anglican Cathedral after the earthquake in 2011. Doesn't look so good. Pretty much destroyed the building and had to be rebuilt with the spire falling. I think there was a video of the spire actually falling. I couldn't find that. I'm going to begin by talking about the Christchurch earthquake, and I'll tell you why in a bit. So it was the earthquake of 2011, and it registered a magnitude of 6.2 on the Richter scale. It led to widespread damage across the whole city, killing 185 people, and it was rated as New Zealand's fifth deadliest disaster. And if the initial earthquake wasn't bad enough, it also created a series of aftershocks. So there were more than 360 aftershocks in the first week And over the following year, there were more than 30 aftershocks of greater than magnitude 5. So just imagine the trauma of the initial earthquake, buildings falling down, and the stress caused by ongoing shocks in the weeks and months and years after, worried if the next shock will be the one that destroys your house or the building that you're working in, wondering if you'll be the next person injured or if the next person who dies is a loved one. Each aftershock would trigger those fears. A few statistics about this earthquake. As a result of the initial quake, more than 10,000 houses had to be demolished. By the end of the year, 2011, the population had dropped 2.5%. So people were escaping the city to live elsewhere because they just couldn't deal with living with such a threat. The economic impact was estimated to be $40 billion and some economists estimate it will take between 50 and 100 years for the economy to completely recover. So this earthquake, uh, it also led to widespread mental health issues with increase in depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's the effect of this massive earthquake followed by ongoing aftershocks. Why do I mention this? Well, give me a little minute to explain. At the moment, we're looking at the letter to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. So the the risen Jesus has appeared to John on the island of Patmos and he's told him to write down everything that he saw. 
And John has sent this letter through the cities in western Turkey. So we started at Ephesus, didn't we? You see Patmos in the bottom left corner, started at Ephesus, went to Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and now around to Philadelphia. And next week is our last week when we look at Laodicea. A few things to note about Philadelphia. Firstly, there was an earthquake, a massive earthquake in 17 AD that destroyed Philadelphia and it also destroyed the city of Sardis. Sardis was more badly damaged than Philadelphia was at the time, but Sardis didn't have any aftershocks. In Philadelphia, the aftershocks went on for years after the event. And a state of panic panic set into the city and there's a historian called Strabo who in 20 AD, three years later, three years later, said that the state of panic was still ongoing in the city of Philadelphia. Many of the inhabitants moved out of the city, living in huts and booths to escape the danger. Those who remained in the city propped up walls and tried to fill in cracks. Apparently, people made plans with earthquakes in mind. It's kind of like a fire plan if you live in the bush. You have to already decide what you're going to do before the fire comes so that when it does come, you know what to do. The people of Philadelphia already had plans in place for another earthquake to hit. So they lived in constant fear that an earthquake was imminent. Just think that, what would that would do to your psyche, to your mental health, to be worried that a quake might come any time. As well as that, Philadelphia had three name changes. So after the earthquake, the Roman Empire said that they'll stop taxing Philadelphia for five years so they could rebuild the city. And out of gratitude to Caesar, Philadelphia changed its name to... Neo-Caesarea, New Caesar or Young Caesar. And they erected a temple to Caesar's son called Germanicus. Uh, They changed their name again in 70 AD to Flavia and again in the 3rd century to Neochorus, which means temple warden. So name changes in this region of the Roman Empire were not common. It was considered a great honour to be given an imperial name, so much so that permission had to be granted by the Roman Senate And it had to be approved by the emperor. So to be given a Roman name meant you had close ties with Rome. It it highlighted your citizenship. It was a great privilege and it wasn't that common, as I suggested. So there was an earthquake that had name changes and there was Jewish persecution. We gather this from the text that the church in Philadelphia was persecuted by the Jews in that city. So have a look at me uh, in verse 9. Or make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. Or make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So Jesus calls them the synagogue of Satan and they claim to be Jews, but they're liars. So they claim that Jesus is not the true Messiah of God and that Christians are not the true people of God. And therefore Christians in the town are shut out from the synagogue. Many were Jews who had grown up in the synagogue and came to believe in Jesus, but now they were shut up out of their own worship place and forced to go elsewhere. And so it's in this context that Philadelphia receives this letter, the earthquake, the name changes, the Jewish persecution. The letter starts with an introduction of who Jesus is, and then it gives a series of encouragements for the church. And so this is one of two churches in, uh, of the seven that doesn't receive a rebuke. And so there's a series of encouragements for them all the, all the way through their letter. So let's start with uh, Jesus' introduction of himself, who he is, and we'll move on to the encouragements. 
So, Jesus starts by saying in verse 7, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. So Jesus calls himself holy and true. He begins by reassuring them of who he is. The Jews are saying that Jesus is not from God, he's not the Messiah, and Jesus replies by saying this. Holy and true is a reference to God in the Old Testament, isn't it? Yahweh is the Holy One of Israel. He's the true God of Israel. And Jesus is saying to them, I'm the Holy One of Israel. I'm the true God who's come to save his people as their Messiah. The church needs to be assured that Jesus is who he says he is. The Jews are denying him. They're telling the Christians to deny him so that they can come back to the synagogue. Of course, it shouldn't be a surprise to us that the Jews rejected Jesus because Israel have always rejected their God through the whole of the Bible. There's many examples of this. For instance, in John's Gospel, we see Jesus arguing with the Pharisees, explaining to them that he is from God, but they don't believe him. Have a look in John chapter 8 and verse 42. If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 22, Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. So Jesus and John are saying, if they really believed in God, they would believe in Christ. Because Jesus was sent by God into the world. And if you don't believe in the Son, you don't believe in the true God. Because this is the true God's Messiah. The Jews in Philadelphia are liars. Because they don't believe in the Son. And they're telling others to not believe in Him. But Jesus says He is the Holy One and the True One. He also says that He holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. Uh, This is a reference to Isaiah chapter 22, where a guy called Eliakim is given the keys to the house of David. So let me read that from Isaiah chapter 22. I will place on Eliakim's shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. It's almost a direct quote. Eliakim decided... Who had access to David's kingdom? If Eliakim allowed someone to enter, they could enter. If Eliakim decided they could not enter, they could not enter. Jesus is the true Eliakim. Jesus decides who enters God's kingdom. And if he decides that someone can enter God's kingdom, there is an open door for that person that no one can shut. And if he decides that they cannot enter, there is a shut door that no one can enter, no one can open. God has given Jesus the keys to the kingdom and he decides who enters. The Jews think they decide who comes into the synagogue. They have closed the door on the synagogue to Christians, symbolizing the Christians cannot access God. But that's not the Jews' decision to make. Only Jesus decides who enters God's kingdom. And when he opens a door to the kingdom, no one can shut it. Jesus holds the keys to the kingdom of God. And so on to our encouragements. The first one's related to that. 
Jesus tells the church in Philadelphia, I've opened the door for you. Since you believe in me, since you don't deny my name, I've opened for the door for you into God's kingdom and it will never be shut. You will always have access to the Father. Don't worry about what the, that the Jews have locked you out of the synagogue. That's just a building. What really matters is that you have access to God's kingdom and I've opened the door for you and it will never be shut. You will always have access to God. Now, access, that's temple language, isn't it? When you hear the word access, you've got to think Old Testament temple. In the Old Testament temple, access to God was restricted. No one was allowed into the most holy place of the temple because that's where God dwells. And Jesus is saying here, you have access to God now, right into God's dwelling place, right into the most holy place, and it will never be taken away from you. The door I have opened for you is a door to the kingdom. You can enter God's kingdom and it will never be shut. And as Christians, we all have access to God, don't we? To the most holy place of God through the blood of Jesus. And because we have access to God, we're bold, the Bible says. We approach God with confidence and boldness because Jesus has given us an open door that will never be shut. And so we read in Hebrews chapter 10 from verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. We approach God confidently. Because Jesus has opened the door for us to enter the most holy place, the very presence of God. We don't come to God hesitantly. We don't come to God with a guilty conscience. We've been washed clean, it says. Our hearts are clean. Our our bodies are washed clean. So we approach God boldly. God has opened a door for you so you can come to God with any time with confidence. And that's what Jesus is telling this church in Philadelphia. Don't listen to the Jews. They've shut, shut you out of the synagogue. They are liars. I've opened the door to the presence of the living God and that, God, that door will never be shut. So they have an open door. What else do they have? They have vindication. They will be vindicated. They will be shown to be right to trust Jesus and the Jews themselves will admit to them that they're right. Have a look with me at verse 9 again. I will make them, the Jews, come down, come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So the Jews who deny Christ, who have shut out the Christians, they themselves will acknowledge that the Christians are right. They will fall down at the feet of Christians and they will acknowledge that Jesus is the true Messiah and that the Christians are the true people of God. There will be vindication for the church at Philadelphia. You know, to be vindicated is to be proved right. It's to be justified. And this church is being pressured by the Jews to deny Jesus, but they won't give in. They hold on to Jesus and they are right to do that. And Jesus says, not only are you right, but you're going to be proclaimed right by the very people that have rejected you. I'll make the Jews come and fall at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Every Christian who's ever lived 
is going to be vindicated. You're going to be vindicated. You're all going to be proved right on the last day. Your faith will be proved right. Your hope will be proved right. Any sacrifices you have made will be proved worthy. Your perseverance proved right and will be praised by God. Every decision you have made for Christ will be shown to be true and fully worthwhile. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 5. He says, And hope does not disappoint us. In other words, all those things that you hope for and all those things that you long for, all those things that have been promised to you by God, they'll all come true. You will be vindicated. Eternity is not going to turn out to be a hoax. The promises of God are not just heartless words to trick you into being a Christian. No, they're right and they're true and they'll be seen to be right and true. You will not be disappointed on the last day. I wonder if like these Christians in Philadelphia, I wonder if you've ever been treated badly for being a Christian. You know, if you've been mocked by people or told that you're wrong or ignored or persecuted or hated by anyone. Well, those people, they will bow down at your feet and they will proclaim that you are loved by God. If it doesn't happen now, it will happen on the day of judgment. And they'll say to you, I was wrong. I was hard-hearted all that time and boastful and arrogant. Your faith in Jesus is true. God has loved you. He loved you all that time. So every Christian will be vindicated on the last day in the presence of God. And it's the unbelievers who will be the first to confess that you are right. You are right to confess Jesus. You are right to live for him. You are right to make those sacrifices and to lift up his name and to promote his church. You are right to suffer for his name. You'll be vindicated and it will be deeply satisfying. So there's an open door. They'll be vindicated. They'll be kept from trial. So Jesus says in verse 10 that they'll be kept from the trial that's going to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. This doesn't mean that they'll be removed from trial, but rather that Jesus will keep them in the midst of trial. They might suffer, they will suffer, but Jesus will keep them and he'll not let them go. He'll make sure that they're not lost despite their suffering. Christians are not kept from trial, are we? We all go through trials, but Jesus promises to never let us go. He loses none that the Father has given him. We know this from uh, different parts of Scripture. Have a look with me. John chapter 17, verse 15. Jesus says, My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. So yes, trials will come upon Christians in the world for sure, but God will protect you from the devil. And this from Second Peter 2, which was shown to me during the week. The Lord knows how to rescue godly people from trials. Isn't that a great line? The Lord knows how to rescue you. God's not weak. He's not stupid or irrational. He knows all things. He's capable of all things. He knows how to rescue you from trial. Are you going through a trial at the moment? 
God knows how to rescue you from that. Trust yourself to him. God's not overwhelmed by your trials. You might be overwhelmed by your trials, but God isn't. He's in complete control. And he knows how to rescue you from trials. I don't know how he does it sometimes. Sometimes he does it miraculously and in the strangest of ways, but he knows how to do it. So you trust him. And this is his promise to the church at Philadelphia. He won't keep you from trials, but he keep keep you through the trials. Okay, let's move on to the overcomers, which is repeated to each of these churches as we go through. To them who overcome, there are two rewards. Firstly, in verse 9, he who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, never again will he leave, sorry, never, never again will he leave it. If you overcome, Jesus will make you a pillar in the house of God. Pillars are symbols of strength and stability. Remember, this city is under constant threat of earthquakes and people live in fear of destruction all the time. There's a constant feeling of fragility and weakness in this city. When I head to Indonesia surfing, I have to write fragile on my surfboard cover so it's not trashed at the Indonesian airport. The Indonesian word for that is hati hati. It means be careful, uh, treat with care, easily broken, fragile. It's made of fiberglass and foam and I don't want it broken into pieces. It's fragile. Well, in Philadelphia, there's a constant feeling of fragility and weakness. They feel easily broken. But he says, if you overcome, he will make you eternally steadfast and strong. Never again will you fear destruction. Never again will you feel weak or fragile. You'll be eternally secure and firm in the presence of God. I googled some pictures of Philadelphia And these images came up. They are some seriously chunky pillars, I think. I'd say they were built after the earthquake, but if they were there before, man, they are some seriously strong and steadfast pieces of work. If you overcome, you will be a pillar in the temple of God, strong and steadfast. And Jesus says, Also, never again will he leave it. So the people in Philadelphia had to leave the city out of fear of another earthquake. They had to live in homes out in the fields because of fear. Imagine not being able to go home because of fear of an earthquake. You have to move into Whiteman Park in a tent. But Jesus says they'll never leave God's presence again because in the heavenly temple there is no fear. There's no fear of destruction. There's no fear of death or injury in God's temple, in God's heaven. There'll be no reason to go out from God. They're going to just stay and live. So if you ever feel fragile, a time is coming when you'll never feel that again. All you'll know in the heavenly kingdom is security and strength and a love from being in the presence of God and you'll never go out from that. You'll never leave that security and that love. You'll be made a pillar in the temple of God. And the second gift for overcomers, they'll be given the name of my God, Jesus says. 
If they overcome, Jesus said, he'll write on them the name of his God. So we saw before that Philadelphia changed its name at least three times to a Roman name in honour of the Roman Empire. And it was a great privilege and honour to be named after a Roman figure. It showed that this town was approved by the Senate, acknowledged by the Emperor. They were proud to be known by these imperial names. Well, if you overcome, God will write his name on you. What a privilege that will be. What an honour. God himself gives you the honour of having his name. It shows your relationship to him. It shows that you belong to him. It shows that he acknowledges you. He's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to write his name on you and let other people see that because you belong to him. And it's not only the name of my God, but it's the name of the city of my God, Jesus says, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And so this also shows that you belong in the new Jerusalem. You don't belong in Rome. You don't belong in Perth or Bassendine or Morley. You belong in God's city. That's your true home. The new Jerusalem's coming from heaven. You'll be a citizen of heaven with all the rights and privileges of a citizen and you'll belong there and that will be your home, the city of the new Jerusalem. And notice this is not the earthly Jerusalem. This is the new Jerusalem coming from heaven. This is where God dwells. God coming to dwell with you, with us. Your name, his name written on you, his, the city written on you and you'll be a part of the people of God in the Jer- new Jerusalem. John says some of this later on in Revelation chapter 21. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So you'll be a citizen of the place where God is, where God lives, where he dwells. You'll dwell with him. He will dwell with you. If you overcome, you will dwell with God in the new Jerusalem. So they're the encouragements. And lastly, notice that Jesus says four times in these last few verses, my God, my God, my God, my God. The Jews in this town have said that Jesus is not the Messiah. He's not from God. He's not to be trusted. And if you've become a Christian, then you miss out on all the promises of God. You miss out on all that God has to offer, the Jews are saying. And so Jesus emphatically and repeatedly prays, He is my God. I am the Son. He is my Father. I was promised before the creation of the world to be the Savior, and I'm here to complete the work my Father has given me. Anyone who comes to me, will receive the blessings of God. I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. I'll write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, which is coming down out of the heaven from my God. Jesus is God's Messiah. He's the holy and true one. He opens the door to the kingdom of his God. And whoever he opens it to, it will never be shut. It will never be shut. You will enter into God's presence You'll never be shut out. You'll never be excluded. If you trust him, if you can cling to him, if you overcome the world, you will always have access through Jesus to his God and Father. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the open door 
that you've given us because of the blood of Jesus. We thank you that we're welcome in there. We have access to the Father and will never be shut out. We look forward to that day. We thank you we have access even today. We can come into the presence of God. We thank you for all these encouragements given to Philadelphia and to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't we continue in prayer? It's so appropriate after hearing just the scriptures opened like that, the access that we have. Why don't we continue in a spirit of prayerfulness together now? Holy Father, we give you thanks and praise that through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you have opened up a door for us into your presence. And so by the indwelling person of your spirit and his enabling, his encouragement, Father, we enter that door, that open door that no one can shut. We give you thanks that your word says that we can have boldness to approach your throne. Like Esther of old, feeling daunted at the threat of approaching royal presence, we actually discover that the scepter is always extended towards us. We are given access into your holy presence. We have a saviour who has washed us of every sin. We have a great high priest standing before us, our intercessor, our mediator, who bears the scars of his finished work. Your spirit has been given to us, indwelling us. And so by the spirit, through the son, we approach your throne and we give you thanks that even now in these moments, in the name of Jesus, we have access to the heavenly throne room. And that your word says access into this grace in which we now stand, not not cower, but stand. Because our position is not dependent upon our performance. You're not persuaded by our good works. You're not dissuaded by our times of failure. Our position before you is completely dependent upon your grace and the perfect finished work of your son. And it's in his name that we stand before you now. And we give you thanks that we can approach you. An open door. We will not be excluded. And so, Father God, we bow before you as a people. And in your presence, we lift up our prayers to find mercy and grace in time of need. We come before you as a congregation to lift up the things that are on our hearts and our minds today. Things that have been weighing heavy on us, people we're concerned for, situations we've been going through. Father, we come into your presence with thanksgiving and with praise and we lift up our petitions and our intercession before you now. We thank you for our year 12s and for the way that you've been leading them through their final year 
through these final exams and we pray for your blessing upon them as they enjoy some time of reprieve, some leavers getaway, some uh, opportunity to relax after some of the pressure and the stress that is laid upon them in year 12. Lord, we pray your blessing upon each and every one of them. May they sense your guidance. May you open up pathways for them in the future that you have for them. We thank you for our young adults up at Ledge Point. We commend them to you today. For Jay and Jess as they lead them, Lord, strengthen them. As a young couple with young children, may they have grace and strength beyond their own to shepherd, to, to parent, to lead and to bless our young adults. We thank you for each and every one. We pray that you would grow them in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. May their roots go down deep. And may they flourish in the things of God. We pray for our children and our teachers as they get ready to finish off their school year. Lord, would you strengthen them and enable them as they come to the completion of their schooling year. We pray for all of us involved in different workplaces and some of the, uh, the stresses and the pressures that we experience in our own places of work. Lord God, may we know your grace upon us all and your strength to each one. Father, as we gather together today, we're reminded that you call us to rejoice with those who rejoice. And there are some here who have great cause for rejoicing, celebrations, exciting news, completion of uh, different courses. Father God, we want to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we remember too that your word tells us to weep with those who weep. And there are some among us here who have had times and days of weeping recently. And we want to stand with them. We want to lift them to you now. There's some who have just started and commenced treatment and we pray for your blessing upon them. We ask that they would know your grace. We pray for those who have been coming through treatment, who have difficult decisions to make, whose bodies are still recovering. Father God, would you just shower them with your goodness and your grace and let them know your presence, your comfort alongside of them. Father God, we think of the different things you've called us to as a church family. We think of the Christmas season that's approaching, the opportunity we have to host carols. We pray, Father, that you would use that occasion as a wonderful time of witness to the child who has been born to us, whose name is Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, wonderful counsellor, mighty God. Father, would you lead us and use us as a congregation as we join together in those occasions? Would you empower us as we worship and as we witness? We ask for our town of Bassendine and our surrounding suburbs and we pray for a move of your Holy Spirit among the suburbs where we live and particularly in this local one. Father, would you open doors for ministry and for the gospel, we pray. We pray for those who are sent out from us as a church. We lift up Summer to you as she completes her first semester of study over there in Tassie. Lord, encourage her and lead her. Bless her in that work and bring her back safely for some break over the Christmas season before she goes back again. We lift up Kim and Michelle to you over in Canberra uh, this weekend with Targa West and just being chaplains to that whole motorsporting community. 
Lord, would you bless them and empower them, we pray. We think of our region. Lord, it's been impressed upon us as a church, even just recently, of some of the needs of country churches in, in our region. And we pray for those churches who are needing to seek you and discover from you uh, just what you have in store for them. We lift up uh, our sister church in Pingerley as they look for a pastor. Would you guide them and that church community there? We lift up Narragin Baptist and as they embark on a pastoral search, guide them in bringing the right couple, the right person to them to shepherd and to care. We lift up Wagen and the needs in that local community and we pray your blessing upon them. Would you guide us, Father God, as a, a city church with some of these connections? Show us how we can encourage, how we can help, how we can be of assistance and support. Father, we think of our global mission partners scattered around the world. We pray for the, the Junipers over in the Democratic Republic of Congo. We commend them to you for Glenn and Liz Black and their boys in northern Thailand, for Ben and Sam Good in Mozambique. We commend them to you this morning. We pray your blessing to rest upon them and strengthen them in their work. Give them strong encouragement, we pray. And Father God, we're conscious of the international conflict that has continued in the Middle East between Israel and, and Gaza. And we pray, Father God, that you will intervene. Prince of Peace, would you break in? We pray that you will bring violence and trouble to an end. We pray that those who deliberately perpetuate violence, may you bring them to a conclusion. Would you terminate those initiatives of violence, we pray. Lord, where there are counterattacks, we pray that you'll mediate those, that they will not inflict damage on civilians we pray father god that you will bring a de-escalating to this conflict that you would remove lord all the the incentive to retribution and violence we pray that you will bring calm that you will bring peace we pray for the international community as we watch on we pray for the christians in the international community as we watch on, show us how to pray. Please, Lord God, I pray that you'll alleviate theological confusion that muddies the water in our responses to this. And we ask, Lord Jesus Christ, you as the Messiah, would you be the Prince of Peace in these situations and others like it? And turn swords into plowshares and bring an end to war. So, Lord Jesus Christ, we look to you today. We thank you that you are holy and true and you have the keys to the kingdom. When you open, no one can shut it. When you shut, no one can open. We thank you for the new Jerusalem that is coming out of heaven. Lord God, I pray that we will know the privilege and the joy of access to your presence now that we would have a strength and a stability as we await that eternal hope. And so we lift these prayers to you in confidence that you are the God who hears. You are the God who forgives and cleanses. You are the God who acts and intervenes. 
And we ask you to do it for your mighty name's sake. Amen. As we close off our service today, I want to echo the the message that we heard. In the grace that we have been given, we know who we are. We have been given guarantees. That identity that is not based on anything that we do, but because of who loves us. Let's stand and close our service.